Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfin. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nachvetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestin Echo. Vientolum again omgrev or corn rachtum. Yatakshatorin Graven or Corson, Elistuhalagus Gimina Fracht, Gorokligs or Dukashin Echor. Only Venown, Thordorakshin. Shachten. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. Hello, welcome to the Big Tech Show podcast with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. And thank you very much to Magnet Networks, the sponsor of this podcast, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. My guests this week are Dara O'Brien, founder and chief executive of Castlebridge, a data protection expert, and Alex Cooney, chief executive of Cyber Safe Ireland, which is a charity organisation set up to keep children safe online. We've loads to talk about today, guys. Before we start, we are in the aftermath of uh, European and local elections. Um, Dara, Billy Kelleher, who is almost certainly going to be elected an MEP in Dublin South, was on the radio telling Sean O'Rourke that uh, we should bring in e-voting again because it's ridiculous that it's taking this long to count elections. Is he right? Um, he's right that it's ridiculous it takes this long to count elections. Um, there may be other ways to improve the process, improve the, the structure, but part of the challenge is in a professional, in a transferable vote system, preferential voting transferable vote system, it just does take that long to do the counting. Um, in terms of an e-voting system, we looked at this before. We looked at it from a security perspective, we looked at it from a data quality perspective, and we turned them off because there were security concerns and because the counts weren't matching the paper count. So you, do, you just don't think that e-voting is um, safe, can ever be a safe system? I, what e-voting lacks, from again, if you look at it, there's been a number of audits and, and reports done on e-voting systems around the world. Um, there is issues around the transparency of the code. There's issues around vulnerabilities on the devices, either at the device level or the network level. And the advantage that paper has is that you can pick up the piece of paper and you can look at it. With e-voting, even with a parallel uh, machine-generated paper audit trail, you were relying on the paper audit trail to accurately record the vote. And anyone who's had their iPhone crash or their, 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 their Samsung phone crash knows that software can be unreliable at times. It can be uh, prone to bugs, it can be prone to errors. The the humble pencil and paper, for all its faults and all its flaws, is immune from external nation-state action from a security perspective. The biggest problem we have is voter awareness and understanding of how to actually vote okay. properly. You've obviously never voted in an election in Chicago. I can tell that from the uh, in terms of pens and uh, pencil and paper. Alex Cooney, CyberSafe Ireland. Do you have any view one way or the other about on e-voting, whether or not it's? Good uh, look, I'll defer, I'll defer to the expert on this one. I mean, it, it, I suppose it would be in in my head. It would it would make it more efficient, but I can understand that there are 
you know, there are... Yeah, I mean, to be be fair, Alex, there are very few experts in this field. The vast majority of the views put forward on this are, are really are from politicians and from journalists who instinctively dislike the idea of e-voting because it takes an awful lot of agency away from them. A five or six day count has a certain amount of drama, has a certain amount of theatre attached to it. It makes uh, star players out of uh, journalists, out of politicians, gives them an awful lot of attention. They really like that. The way they describe that is uh, they say that it it provides transparency into democracy. What they may actually mean is it gives them uh, a platform. So sometimes I I wonder about the motivations of some of the people who are saying they don't want an e-voting system to come in. Uh, I I think, AJ, if it was the other Dara O'Brien who's active on Twitter and not the comedian, uh, I'd agree with you, uh, who's talking here. But... I have no skin in the game politically. I just look yeah. at, I've just i looked at it from a security and data quality and data governance perspective. There are significant risks with e-voting systems and you, that transparency that politicians mm-hmm. love for the theatre of it is actually one of the key controls we have over the validity of the voting system. Mm-hmm. When we have counted those votes, we know that they are a correct count because, and we can go back and we can review and audit the actual physical paper and we can see where people have written uh, messages and thereby spoiling their vote or leaving ballot papers blank completely, which... Yeah distorts the vote. So somebody has something to lose, therefore they are going to act as the de facto uh, watchdog on the the day. It's not even that someone has something to lose, it's that there is transparency, there is a clear paper trail, and Mm. we we know clearly if there has been any interference or any questions through that chain of, of, of the voting trail, through the, from the time the ballot papers are collected by the polling clerks, from the time they're delivered to the count centre and counted, that paper trail is fairly secu- relatively secure. With electronic voting, you never are 100% secure or certain. Like We are constantly getting uh, security patches that for operating systems. That does sound systems. a little bit like an anti-technology argument in the sense that how can you ever be sure that your email is totally secure? How but, can you ever you, be sure that your phone you, is never secure? You can't. You can't. So, um, with, so with that, that sounds like an absolute argument that we can never actually have e-voting. I'm not saying you can't ever have e-voting. What I'm saying is that uh, e-voting systems that I've I, I've looked at, the studies that I've seen on lo- uh, from various areas, uh, there was one for Switzerland that was c- conducted recently uh, on e-voting in Switzerland. And again, there were serious flaws found in the code. Mm. The, uh, we'll leave it because we, we didn't, I didn't invite you into studio to talk about this. It's just that uh, while the election has happened, I thought I would pass it by you. The one argument also that I do want to highlight that is made by strong opponents of electronic voting is that uh, the current system promotes participation and interest in the process. I would strongly wonder or challenge that view given that we had 30% turnout in some constituencies in this election. The the idea that the drama and the crack and the the theatre around the voting uh, process promotes a greater interest in the system I think that case really has to yet to be made, yeah, personally. That, uh, personally, there's a causation, co- causation correlation error there in the analysis. Mm. In terms of driving voter engagement, it's about going back and teaching the importance of voting in civics classes. I remember in high- secondary school, teacher telling me, if you don't vote, you have no grounds for complaining if you don't get what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we look at what happened with Brexit, one of the key things, the day after Brexit, te- voters who were voting for the first time or maybe the second time in, in a referendum found it very difficult to understand that it wasn't a Facebook poll or a Twitter poll. Ah, did they really, though? Uh, 
the, the Vox Pops that were being done, people didn't realise there was an actual import and implication of what they were doing mm. when they went to vote. I sometimes wonder, because I try not to give away uh, personal biases in this show, they're probably evident sometimes, but I, I would be a Remainer if I, was, if, if I was in the UK. But I do think sometimes that we kind of patronise the other side and attribute sort of idiot tendencies to them that maybe are maybe some of them have but I'm not sure was that really a widespread thing they didn't know what they were voting for I think it wasn't that they didn't know what they were voting for is that understanding the import of, of a vote the ramifications the ramifications, the ramifications yes. of vote because they're now bombarded with Twitter yeah. polls Facebook polls and they're used to liking people yeah. uh, as part of that social media interaction that I despise oh, I so much. Just, just dripping with snow, <laughs> because you hate Facebook anyway. Um, Alex, did you want to say something there? Uh, no, I was just thinking that although the demographics were that the, the, the first-time voters would be the young guys, and they yeah. were the ones that voted largely to yeah. remain, right? So mm. it was the older generation mm. who would have been seasoned voters who... Swung yeah, the poll because they went out yeah. in large numbers. Listen, we could do an entirely separate podcast <laughs> uh, on all of this. Um, a couple of things I want to get to here today. It's been a year since the GDPR data privacy uh, was introduced in Europe. It's also been around a year since the digital age of consent was set in Ireland. Um, Dar, I'll start with you. Helen Dixon, the Data Protection Commissioner, has just been reappointed to a second five-year term. Has she done a good job? Um Given the job she had to do, which was to modernise and scale up a, a a regulatory body that had been effectively, in my view, sidelined by government agencies uh, in the past, that was significantly under-resourced, mm-hmm. um, she's done a good job so far. She's grown the, grown the team. She has secured additional budget. Uh, she has raised the profile of the Data Protection Commission uh, to a significant degree. I think what we're seeing now in the second term will be where the rubber hits the road. Um, the GDPR will be is in force, has been in force for a year now, uh, 20% of her, of her term in office. The transition period is over and the key test will now be what level of effective enforcement do we see over the next five years. So the DPC's office has said that of the 17 investigations, statutory inquiries into tech multinationals like Facebook and Google, that the first uh, judgments will effectively will come back this summer, including any penalties if they are due. Are you expecting penalties? I think we need to be careful here is to distinguish between fines and penalties. Article 58 of GDPR has a range of other enforcement sanctions the DPC Mm -hmm. can levy other than just fines. Um, I think we will see some. Um, The question then is when there is a penalty levied, we're, we're going to see appeals. Lots of appeals because any organiz- none of these companies are going to put their hands up and say it was a fair cop gov. Although to be fair, Google has copped eight billion euro in fines from the European Commission on d- d- different area competition. Uh, as recently as uh, this spring, it took a one point five billion euro fine. It, the key difference there it has is appealed. That, I think it has appealed one or two, but there's some some big ones that didn't appeal. Yeah, the key difference there is between the competition world is that if. Uh, because we have civil liability under GDPR mm. with no need for individuals who are affected to show loss, mm. once a, a data controller says it's a fair cop gov and accepts a fine or accepts a, a sanction, it opens the door then for um, an unknown level of potential civil liability. Which we haven't I'm seen sure, yet, but, I'm sure that's, but is provided for. But is provided for. And we have seen a high court case recently uh, an actual high court decision on data pr- on privacy issues where the, the, the damages were in the order of 50,000 euros. So mm. it's not small stakes. Did it involve a swing? No. 
<laughs> Couldn't resist. Sorry. Um, Alex, let's move to the digital age consent. It's been a year since uh, we changed the law from 13 to 16 with the digital age of consent. Um, we were talking about this before, and it appears, based on some research that you have had access to, that it has had limited effect. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I would say that it's it's pretty nominal. So the idea was that, you know, by introducing this digital age of consent and setting it at 16, that we were protecting children by ensuring that their data wouldn't be collected by online service providers and ensuring that there was parental consent involved in the process for children that were younger than that. Um, in our experience, children significantly younger than 16 are using online services and are doing so relatively easy, easily. They're accessing these services uh, with with few limitations. So, you know, if they just put 16, for example, mm. they can bypass pretty much any of the requirements that might be in place. Uh, if they put 13, then there may be in some cases um, some protections, but it's it basically very easy to bypass. So, and I should say that there is some research from UCD that UCD has done, I think, yeah. that, that went through the different social networks and tested their age verification processes or lack thereof. And it essentially found that not one of them really enforces it. That if, if a child who's 11 or 12 simply puts in 16, that they, 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 they will get into everything. it, they'll yeah. bypass it. So, yeah, we did some work with UCD, so um, uh, with Liliana Pasquale and Paola Zippo. And we found that the sign-up processes are some of, some of the most popular apps, so WhatsApp, Discord and Messenger mm -hmm. don't require an age at all at, at, all. Si uh, at sign up. So you need to rifle through the terms and conditions to be aware of the minimum mm -hmm. age. The others would be the, the other popular ones. So the top three would Snapchat, Instagram, WhatsApp. Um, Snapchat and Instagram would require an age at sign up. But again, easy enough to bypass for a, a savvy kid. Um, and uh, most of the kids that we're dealing with are indeed very yeah. savvy. And the vast majority of them are under 13, which is, which is of course, so the minimum So what age. was the point then in changing the digital age of consent from 13 to 16? I mean, I think it was well-intentioned. I think it's, you know, re recognition that we do need to protect children's data. Um, children don't have a, in general, have a great understanding of what their data, what it means. Um, mm. So they're kind of giving it away without thinking of the, of the implications. I, so I do think it was well -intentioned intention, but I don't think it was thought through and I don't think it's been taken very seriously, despite, uh, you know, some of the companies at the time coming out and saying that they would take it seriously. I think it's what they've done is is relatively nominal and far too easy to bypass. So what is going to happen now? Do you think there's going to be pressure on greater enforcement on age verification? For example, we see in the UK in July, they're going to bring in uh, a new system aimed at commercial uh, online pornography sites that requires age verification systems to be logged. The two ways of doing it. I think you can I think I think a credit card will qualify as such. But I think you can also walk into a shop and buy what's now being called a porn pass. And you have to show your age verification of eighteen there and then you get I don't know what it is, a code or something or a scratch card. I'm not sure what it is. And you can use that for the mainstream online uh, commercial um, adult content sites and that they're bringing in that that bill. Um, is and that is kind of a new thing for European country to do that. Is that something that anybody is suggesting here, or or how do you read the the environment? 
Yeah, we talk a lot about age verification. Um, and, you know, it is it is the only way to determine if a child is, is the age that they say they are. And, and as I say, most of the children we're talking to would be putting ages that are not their actual age in order to access these sites. But what we feel is more important is that we're educating children to be in these environments, to be in the online world and to be critical thinkers in that space and to challenge what they're see, seeing and hearing. So age verification, there are lots of challenges with that. Like, you know, uh, what, what data are you giving in way in order to, to ensure that, you know, that, that does happen, that you, you're giving an, a, a correct age. So, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced that age verification is the right way. I think what we need is, is good digital literacy education for children. I think we need to put more onus on the service providers to provide better, uh, you know, be better designed environments that, that would be appropriate for children. Um, you know, lots, of, lots more educational pop-up messages, that kind of thing. Privacy by default should be standard for all users. Uh, you know, there's lots of things that they could be doing. We don't necessarily need to be giving more data away in order to ensure that uh, children are the, or the Dara, age they are. I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago when Mark Zuckerberg came to Dublin and one of the TDs who was down to meet him, Hildegard Nocton from Fine Gael, suggested that one way of controlling the ages of kids that get onto social media was for them to, or their parents, to upload their passports or their PPS details uh, to the social networks. Um, now, she resolved from it. Did you think that was a good idea? No. Um, again, it's a quick knee-jerk reaction. Yes, it's a valid form of ID. It's there. But again, there, there's a variety of issues around uploading any form of identity documentation to an external third-party site. Um, it would require legislative change around the use of PPSN and the public service card in that context. It would essentially make the public service card a national identity card for yep. age verification purposes, which it is not. Um, and in that context, that wasn't a great idea. And again, we're struggling this idea of age verification online. This idea of age verification is not new. Uh, I can remember as a spotty-faced teenager figuring out ways of... Uh, procuring substances that were not allowed to me below a certain age because it was a good way to have a... When you say substances, you should I mean, probably say alcohol. It was, it was alcohol. It was alcohol. Uh, um, but in that context, we still, we, we had that, there, there, there was one guy in my school who had a very, very good business in fake ID manufacturing. Mm, um, I mean, from what I understand, it's still going. We have a 16, about to turn 17-year-old in the house and between her and her mates... Uh, I hear stories of very professional-looking fake IDs uh, doing the rounds, that many of them have them. And I can remember in first year in university, uh, for anyone under the age of 18, your student card had your date of birth printed on the front of it, and the first thing people did was get a tube of toothpaste and remove that. Mm. Um, so these issues are not new to the online world. They've existed in the offline world. And the desire to gather more information and more data uh, to manage that, it's understandable, but we need to step back and ask, has it worked in the offline world, given that one of the key reasons for the introduction of the passport card was the fact that people were bringing their passports out with them to go to nightclubs and bars mm. and were losing their passports while they were out getting drunk. Mm. The key issue, is, I agree completely, it's about educating children. I have a, I have a small person in the house at, at home and we go through everything. She's very aware and understanding of, of data issues and, and data privacy issues. And we talk openly about the questions and about the issues. How old is she, do you mind me asking? She's um, nine. She's nine. What's your, I, I mean, 
tell me to stop if you think I'm mm. wrong. What, what's your view toward her? She's now coming into a key age, yep. uh, which is uh, sort of the key age that we all talk about in these issues. What's your view or your approach to what she should be allowed access to and under what conditions and circumstances? Uh, well, the, the key condition is always, it's open and transparent. She, she She's encouraged to come with questions. She's So is she allowed, for example, to access any social networks? No, not at the moment. Okay. And she understands why. She's yeah. not comfortable with the idea of social networking herself. Is she allowed access sites like Google? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but through a privacy respect, privacy enhanced browser. Okay. And are any of her friends that you're aware of using any services like Instagram or yeah, Snapchat? They are. They are. And does um, she feel left She doesn't out? feel any left out. She doesn't feel left out. She understands they're using them. Okay. She understands they're there. She frankly doesn't see the point. She prefers meeting her friends in person. Mm-hmm. Now that may not always be the case though. Uh, if at the age of 11 she turns around and says, I really want an Instagram. What, that, what that's when think? I take the Disney approach to parenting and lock her in a large car <laughs> in the background. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, well, well, I'm fi- trying to figure out, Alex, what is going to happen now because if these, if the digital age of consent is not being effectively enforced either through age verification or anything else, uh, maybe, for example, the new Digital Safety Commissioner that is due in Ireland maybe later this year, maybe the first part of uh, next year, maybe they might uh, get their skates on in helping to enforce that. But the critics or the, the very zealous proponents of raising the digital age of consent will say, we haven't gone far enough. We need new laws like the UK to, um, to, to, to put manners on these social networks, to, for it to be mandatory for kids who are using the internet or smartphones to have some sort of, of ID. Is that the environment we're going to walk into now? Or what do you think is the best way forward? I mean, I think the best way forward, I, as I said, that the bill was well-intentioned. It, you know, we, we online service providers shouldn't be collecting data on children. I, I, I do strongly believe that shouldn't be advertising to children. Um, but it, it hasn't worked. It didn't go far enough. It wasn't explicit enough in terms of what uh, the online service providers needed to do. I think that we do have the Digital Safety Commissioner coming down the line, hopefully, um, it, we don't know what the bill looks like yet. There's just the consultation period just closed uh, recently. In If we're following the Australian model, uh, the that role had a very strong education man, uh, remit alongside the regulation piece. And for me, that would be really important that we are bringing all of these things under one umbrella and we are ensuring that we have a very clear strategy on how we move forward in terms of the online service providers who definitely need to be held to much greater account. Um, a digital literacy program being rolled out into schools that will benefit primary and secondary uh, age school. I, I have a nine-year-old at home as well. And, They're you know, scary, these conversations, they? they are scary. Um, these conversations get better, folks. <laughs> I know. Um, these conversations that, you know, between parents and children, carers and children, the conversations at school are critically important in preparing our kids. Um, so I think we need a really clear strategy moving forward, which looks at ethical design, uh, you know, that this is happening in the UK. Uh, the Information Commission is introducing this in uh, a new bill into the UK. So I think we really need to put more pressure on, on online service providers, but we also need to recognise that children need to be prepared. They need good education on this. Yeah, it's also worth looking at the proposed amendment to Section 30 of the Data Protection Act 2018, which will, be pro- which will prohibit the use of uh, data for persons under the age of 18 for 
uh, analytics for direct marketing purposes. Mm. That will remove one of the key commercial drivers for gathering data of people. But how, how is all of this enforced? There are yeah. quite a lot of laws on the books yeah. that you could be interpreted to, to say, well, we do have this, this legislation on the statute. How is this going to be enforced? Well, that is is the... That, that will, because of being the Data Protection Act, mm-hmm. that will be for the Data Protection Commission to determine how that will be enforced. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key thing here, the key thing is the focus being on direct, on an- analytics for the purposes of direct marketing means that if you are getting targeted direct marketing and you were under the age of 18. So just in terms of a real life example, mm-hmm. that would depend then on somebody making a complaint to the DPC, yep. to Helen Dixon's office, for Helen Dixon's office to then to look at that to investigate and inquire whether this is a systemic or a one-off thing in that company and then to adjudicate in that. That's, is that how that would That would be or for the Data Protection Commission on their own recognizance to launch an auditor investigation action uh, of uh, an, an organization mm-hmm. or an industry sector to assess the practice. Which it sometimes there. does. Which it publishes they, 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 they the details do in its lot, annual yeah. report. At this point, I would like to again thank the sponsors of this podcast, Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. Now, before we uh, before we, we wrap this podcast up, um, Dara, I'll ask you again about the uh, GDPR and the DPC. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the big talking points in the next year are going to be? A couple of key talking points are going to be in the next year. Uh, firstly, the enforcement. What's going to happen? The, the, the big talking point is going to be, oh, Lordy, people are appealing the actions that are taken against them. Mm. Who would have thought it? Uh, so the actions that will be taken are hopefully going to be meaningful and they're hopefully going to be significant and also the rigour with the DPC is applying to how the to the procedural aspects of their investigations is going to come under significant scrutiny uh, over the next year as their decisions are being appealed because they have a significant implication and impact for organisations. The other key talking point we're going to see is the discussion around the overall strategy for the Data Protection Commission. They've started a consultation. They're starting a consultation on their five-year strategy at the moment, uh, which is great. Hopefully, they, the consultation will be completed and concluded before five years. Um, within that, we we should fi- see some discussion of whether or not there will be the second and third commissioner appointed and how they'll be appointed and what the structure of that will be and whether there will be a mechanism to allow for continuity of leadership and continuity of strategy uh, through staggering appointments or things like that. Um, And the other key thing is we're seeing Privacy Shield, 9th of July, in front of the... European Court of Justice. We're seeing That's the, the EU, model US. EU US. We're also seeing Successor model to Safe Harbor. We're also seeing model clauses before the European Court of Justice in the same period as well. Notwithstanding the uh, Facebook having appealed to the Supreme Court here, yeah, which made that no is, sense. That is a case which originated here in Ireland. Yes. Um, through Max uh, Schrems. Well, it was the DPC, the DPC initi- initiated yeah. the, the the referral to the European Court of Justice. Yes. And the issue there is whether or not model clauses can be relied upon. Can model clauses be relied upon for cross-border data transfer outside mm-hmm. of the European Union or European Economic Area, which would include the UK yeah, after so October. That's going to be the big um, question, isn't it? And, and Brexit is the other big thing in the short term. Mm-hmm. What the heck's going to happen next? So if, they, if, if it's a hard exit, for example, you would say perhaps that, that it could cause chaos for organizations with offices in the UK? We're already working with clients. We've been working with clients for the last two years to get ready for the worst case scenario on Brexit. And if you're not relying on model clauses, then what are you relying on? What are they relying on? 
You're relying on a case-by-case analysis, uh, relying on self-assessment of adequacy, which is, again, subject to challenge. It's a mess. Mm -hmm. Um, It's worth bearing in mind that what Brexit is doing is unpicking 40 years of cohesion Mm -hmm. and integration, um, and the other side doesn't appear to have a plan. Okay, all right. Well, thank you for your side of it. Um, Alex, uh, just lastly, before we go, we talked about uh, Brexit there. Um, Do you think that we're likely to see a more coherent approach across European countries towards protection of children online? Or are we all going about this on a very much a country by country uh, basis? No, I mean, I think we we will see more coherence across Europe. Uh, You know, we had the Council of Europe recommendations last year, which were, you know, really strong. Um, It would be great to see now those those actually being followed. so I, I think there are great opportunities to have more cohesion, uh, but it shouldn't uh, stop us doing good things here or waiting for the, because, for, you know, some of the arguments I heard before the online safety commissioner was proposed was that, oh, we can't because, you know, they're, you know, because they've got the right of appeal at the European level. Um, whereas actually we need to, to, to lead the way as well. You know, if there are good strategies that we can put in place in Ireland, let's do it. Do you think the online safety commissioner w- will have an effective role when he or she is appointed? Look, I don't think it's a, anything as a silver bullet. I think there are a range of measures that we, we need to introduce. What I hope is, as I said before, that they have a, a really strong mandate. They're well-resourced. You know, it has, it has teeth, um, that it can work with uh, entities both inside Ireland and outside because, you know, actually some of the more popular ones like TikTok aren't based mm, in Ireland. No. Um, so then, you know, looking at strategies to engage with them effectively. Um, and I hope there's a strong education role. So we're really leading the way there. Okay. Well, Alex Cooney, Chief Executive of CyberSafe Ireland, and Dara O'Brien, Founder and Chief Executive of Castlebridge, thank you very much for joining us today in studio. And that is all we have time for. For me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent, I will talk to you the same time next week. And a final word of thanks to Magnet Networks for sponsoring this podcast. Bye-bye. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland.